So good to be with you today. Let me ask you, let me ask you a question. Let's assume that you lost your life. Maybe you went into a coma for an extended period of time. And suddenly you woke up at full energy. What's the first thing you would do? Whatever that first thing was would tell us a lot about you. It would reveal your priorities, would reveal your preferences, reveal your pleasures. In fact, today as we take a look, as we continue our study in Luke's gospel, we're jumping to verse or to chapter 24 and we're going to discover what Jesus did at first when he came back to life. And that question is answered for us today. Let's take a look together at Luke chapter 24. We're going to read this great story that only Luke, the historian, doctor, recorded for us. Luke 24, verse 13, this is what it says. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And they, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you you the only visitor in Jerusalem that does not know these things that have happened here these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us, and they went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. And they came and they told us that they'd seen a vision of angels and who said he was alive. And then sent some of our companions, they went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And he said to them, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Does not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and He disappeared from their sight, and they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And they got up, and they returned at once to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them and assembled together and saying, it's true, the Lord has risen. He has appeared to Simon. And, And the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Amazing. I, I guess so. How many of you wish you could have been there? Made that twosome a threesome? That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. That same day, we read what we call Easter Sunday. 
the day that he rose from death, that same day, so he's been dead three days, he comes back to life, what's the first thing he does? He doesn't find his mom and hug her, he does later. He doesn't rush to the 11 who were faithful after pouring his life into them for three years. He does go back to them later. What does he do the first moments after his resurrection? He finds two guys that have never personally met him. He's all about going to people that don't know him. In fact, Luke, who records this, was an outsider. The other gospel writers were insiders. Luke was the outsider. He'd been included later. It's why we call this series in Luke, Included. We find Jesus constantly going to those that felt they were in the back of the line, on the edges, in the fringes, in the shadows, the least likely. The first thing Jesus did when he came back from death was he went to two guys who had never met him. He said, let's open the Bible together. Let's sit down. Let's have a meal together. Let's, let's have a relationship together. Let me reveal myself to you. Amazing. But when Jesus joins the conversation, and isn't it fun? I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have watched what happened? These two guys, they're sad. They're downcast. They're, bummer, man. This Jesus, we had our hopes up, and then he got himself dead. And we went to the funeral, and it's three days later, and it's too late now. Jesus comes up, and he says, so tell me what's going on. And Cleopas says, are you crazy? Are you the only guy in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happening here? There's this Jesus guy. And Jesus must have suppressed a chuckle, don't you think? Or at least a smile. You're talking about me. And he plays along and he says, Jesus, this sounds like an interesting character. Tell me more about him. And so they begin to talk about Jesus. And he's the one that we had our hopes on. And, and they didn't realize that they were actually talking to him. We learned something from that. We learned that it's possible to be physically alive, but to not be able to spiritually see and know Jesus. And in fact, it's not only possible, but it's true for all of us until we come to Christ. God is the one who has to open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds to the revelation of Jesus. And their story becomes our story today. They said to Jesus, well, Jesus, he's, he's, he's this guy, and he died, and we wish there was something like the resurrection, but, but he's gone, and we're sad, and we're on our way home. And Jesus says to them, you guys are foolish, aren't you? I mean, you're so, you're so slow in your hearts. And Jesus began to open up the scriptures to them. And it says that he started with Moses and then with all of the prophets, and you notice that little word all, it's used twice, and he opened up all of the scriptures to them, and he showed them about himself. He says, let's start with Genesis, and you know that they didn't have a Bible. In fact, the Bible isn't called the Bible in the Bible. You know that, don't you? A Bible is a word that comes from the idea of book. And later when the New Testament was added to the Old Testament scriptures, because the New Testament was written after this encounter with Jesus and the two guys, and then it was put in kind of book form, then it was called Bible. It's always been called the scriptures, the holy scriptures. It's God's word to us. And Jesus said, you guys are missing the point about Jesus. And he opened up Moses and the prophets. It's another way of stating the Old Testament. 
And he says, this is really cool. Greatest Bible study ever. By the way, I wish Luke would have recorded exactly what Jesus said, don't you? But he didn't. He didn't give us any of that. He just, here's the idea. He just says, let's start with Genesis. And by the way, they would have had scrolls at the time or maybe a few parchments. And those would have been kept in synagogue. So Jesus is quoting from memory here, very likely as they're walking. And he starts from memory back in Genesis. And he says, see, I'm here in Genesis. And then let's go to Leviticus. And see, I'm there too. And let's go to Exodus. And look, I'm there too. And I'm in Numbers. And here I am in the Psalms. And here I am in the prophet Jeremiah. And here I am in Ecclesiastes. And he, he talks his way through the Bible because this book is all about Jesus Christ. And that is fundamental to our belief and our practice here at Evergreen. We are people who study God's word and we study it with a view towards seeing Jesus come off of every page. And that's what he did for them that day. This book is all about Jesus. The first thing Jesus does when he rises from death is he finds two guys who were interested in him but didn't know him. And they opened the scriptures together and he taught them about himself. And he went to their home and they began to move in a relationship and they had a meal together and they discovered more about Jesus together. And we do that here too. In fact, we call that life groups together. And it was when Jesus in one of their residences broke the bread, which he had done just days before with the 12 and as he broke his, the bread apart, he said, this is my body. The bread called the word of God throughout scripture. When Jesus broke the bread, their eyes were opened and they realized that this was the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior, the Lord, the one that was anticipated And in that moment of revelation, Jesus vanished from their sight. And as they talked together, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scriptures to us? That's the good kind of heartburn. That heart that burns because there is a passion within each of us that longs to have the fulfillment of being connected with a savior that will usher us into the eternal nature of life that we were created for. Jesus revealed himself to them. This is amazing. Jesus died and rose again because death only happens where sin rules. And because there was no sin in Jesus, he reigned over sin and death and came back to life as the conquerors. And here is the big idea in this story today. Jesus wants you to know him. Jesus wants you to know him. So this is going to be kind of fun. Let's take a look at how Jesus introduced himself to those guys before he broke the bread. There are in the Bible... uh, hundreds, if not thousands of prophecies. Some people have counted up in the Old Testament that maybe there's as many as 2,000 prophecies, but there's certainly a few hundred prophecies that were predictions of who Jesus was and when he was going to to come. And in the Old Testament scripture, roughly 25% of it, that was the Bible that was written at the time of this story, looked forward to the future. Prophetic in nature, God through humans 
with Holy Spirit power and inspiration, writing his story, which was all about Jesus, the one who was going to come. God revealing future events in meticulous detail so that we would know who Jesus was when he came. This is what makes Christianity fundamentally different from every other form of religion. It makes the Bible unique. Most of us would like to know at least parts of the future. God absolutely knows the future. He knows it because he's eternal. We think of life in six dimensions, three dimensions of space and three dimensions of time. But God lives essentially in a seventh dimension, the dimension of eternity. And so he can simultaneously experience the other six dimensions at any moment, the past, the present, as well as the future, and the three dimensions of space as well. And from his perspective of eternity, God describes with meticulous detail this Jesus who was going to come. And he wrote the history of Jesus in advance. I remember the first time that I did my own study. I was probably 21 or 22, and I'd been asked to speak for a week at a high school student retreat at Camp Wainema over on the coast. Some of you have been there. And so uh, I was being asked to talk about apologetics, giving a rational basis for our faith. And one of the forms of Christian apologetics is to look at Old Testament prophecies that predict the future, and especially about Jesus. And so I was reading a bunch of books like Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Some of you in this service would be familiar with that. And I got so excited about that, and I was going, this is amazing, this is amazing. I was driving all my friends crazy. This is amazing. And then I rushed over to Camp Wainema, like, uh, half a day in advance, and I filled marker boards and, and uh, flip charts and chalkboards with all this information. And these poor kids, you know, they walk in to what's going to be like a workshop a day a week for the rest of the week. They're looking at all this like I thought I was on summer vacation. This looks a lot like school. And I'm saying, this is amazing. This is amazing. And look, at Jesus is here, and Jesus is there. And by the end of the week, most of them are going, this is amazing. This is amazing. Let's take a few minutes this morning to get amazed, okay? Let's find what Jesus might have done in this study. He probably started right out in Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. It's the first prophecy in the Bible. Sin has entered through our first parents, Adam and Eve. And when sin entered, the serpent, our enemy, Jesus' adversary, Satan, began to work his way. And immediately at his entrance, God addresses Satan, and he makes this prophecy about a Savior who is going to come. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. He's going to be born to a woman. A Savior is going to come to this planet that has just had the introduction of sin. It's going to be a he. It's going to be a male child. He's going to be born of a woman. And this is the first intimation of a virgin's birth. You notice that there is no comment here about a human father because Jesus was going to be born of a woman without a biological earthly father. He would be conceived by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. There would be a man in the picture. His name would be Joseph, but he would be the wife of the husband of Mary. He would adopt Jesus, but the birth was going to be God becoming man. And the prophecy was that he was going to come, and while Satan would strike his heel 
a picture of the cross, that Jesus was going to crush the serpent's head. A savior was going to come. He was going to be born of a woman. And moving on forward in the story in Genesis, years later now, 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus, in Genesis chapter 17, there's an obscure guy wandering around in the wilderness, and he has a child by a one-night stand with a woman named Hagar. And this wanderer named Abraham is having a conversation with God and says, if Ishmael might live under your blessing... And God said, oh, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him, an everlasting covenant. So here it is. He's going to be born of a woman, not an earthly father. It's going to be a male. He's going to be born in the lineage of Abraham. He's going to be born through Sarah, not through Hagar, the girlfriend. And there's a son that's going to be named Isaac, meaning laughter, because God gets the last laugh when he impregnates this 90-year-old woman. And it's going to be through the line, line of Isaac. There's going to be a savior of the world. Maybe that's when Jesus jumped over to one of the prophets in Isaiah. This one written uh, several hundred years before Jesus. And he's going to tell us how Jesus is going to be born. In Isaiah chapter 7, uh, verse... Verse 14, it says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give you a son. And you will call him Emmanuel. Amazing. So God's telling us as he narrows this funnel even further about 700 years before Jesus was born, that a virgin is going to give birth to a child. That narrows it down, doesn't it? Probably in the Middle East, there were not a lot of pregnant virgins wandering around. You know that when that happens, that we're probably getting pretty close to the birth of this child. Exactly. And his name, his title is going to be Emmanuel because this is going to be God with us. You know it's going to be him when a virgin is bearing a child when she gets pregnant and her name is Mary and his name is Jesus and he is going to be God with us. Amazing. Well, how about bringing it down even further? One of the prophets that we call a minor prophet, Micah, several hundred years before Jesus' birth, tells us precisely where he's going to be born. Micah 5 verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, small, tiny little dinky, hick town, rural town, small place. Nothing ever special ever happens there. This is where king's going to come. Yes, out of you will come the ruler over Israel, the one whose origins are from old, from the ancient times. Yeah, he's going to come from Bethlehem. Now, was Jesus from Bethlehem? Where did he grow up? Nazareth. Yeah, way north of Bethlehem. So in Nazareth, there's a virgin. She becomes pregnant by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Her husband-to-be decides to marry her anyway, Joseph, and to adopt the baby. There's a guy thousands of miles away in Rome that decides he wants to collect more taxes, and so he makes a decree that everybody has to go back to the hometown of their forebears. For Joseph, that's back to Bethlehem for his forebear, King David. And you have to register there in the census so that the taxes will be paid. And Mary's very pregnant during the trip. And when she gets down there, 
down there to Bethlehem. She has the baby. And the prophecy is fulfilled about where he would be born. Furthermore, as it narrows down even further, 400 years before Jesus was born, Micah the prophet in chapter 3 verse 1 tells us where he would be seen and when it would happen. I quote, see, I'll send my messenger who'll prepare the way before me. And suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Where will he come? To his, say it with me, temple. Which means this Messiah had to be born before A.D. 70. Because at that time, the temple was raised, torn to the ground. And for the last nearly 2,000 years, there has not been a temple in Jerusalem. He had to come before 70 A.D. He was coming in to that temple. Here's the clue. This person, whoever he is, this Savior, has to come by 70 A.D. And if you want to know what his job description is, what it's going to look like, what he's going to do, and the impact that he's going to have on people. The Isaiah prophet, 700 years before Jesus, chapter 35, verse 5, tells us, this is how you can spot him. And their eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf and stopped, and the lame will leap like deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Well, nobody ever before or since had that happen. Yet deaf people will start hearing and lame people will jump up out of their wheelchairs and they're going to dance. And people that haven't been able to see are going to be able to see. Yeah, when that happens, you'll know that he's come. And that's exactly what Jesus did. You'll know who he is. You'll know who he came from. You'll know where he's born. You'll know where he shows up. You'll know what he does. And you'll know that he's going to be betrayed and precisely for how much. We're told that Jesus would be betrayed and the bounty on his head was going to be precisely, well, let's just read it in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12 and 13. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. Not 29, not 31, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price which they pierced me for. And so I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord, of the potter. A place in the temple hasn't existed for the last 2,000 years that existed in Jesus' day that was destroyed a few years later where there was a place called the place of the potter. Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus for how much? 30 pieces of silver He's going to be a man who's born of a woman. There's no earthly father in the picture. It's going to be a virgin. It's going to be through the lineage of Abraham, and it's going to be through the son of Sarah. And he's going to be born before 70 AD, and he's going to be betrayed with the price on his head of 30 pieces of silver. And in disgust, he's going to throw it back at the people who gave it to him. And he's going to die. Well, we read about it from King David describing his death in Psalms chapter 22, where David says, they have pierced my hands and feet. Where was Jesus pierced? His hands and feet. They will count all my bones and people will stare and gloat over me. The now emaciated, dehydrated image of a person gasping for breath on a cross that would accentuate the ribcage. 
They will divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. The thousand years before Jesus was born, not only was his mode of death crucifixion prophesied, but crucifixion hadn't even been created yet by the Romans. That wouldn't happen for a few hundred years later. Yes, when Jesus opened the scriptures, he could have walked through hundreds of prophecies for the two men on the road to Emmaus and said, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. How can you be so slow of heart to have not seen me all over this? And yes, and finally, all through the Bible, there's a promise that he would rise again from death. Amazing. No wonder I was so excited as a 21, 22-year-old college student getting to search the scriptures my own time for the first time and see Jesus all over the pages with passion wanting to say to high school students, you can trust this book. It was written by God. And one of the great proofs and demonstrations of that is that God thousands of years in advance told us not only the primary story of his son Jesus who would come, but told us in advance in multiple ways exactly who he would be and how he would become and how he was unique and that he is totally righteous. And because he has no sin in him, he would come back to life because sin would have no power over him. And you can trust this story and you can trust him with your life and you can trust him for your righteousness and for your forgiveness and your eternal destiny. That's amazing. Evergreen, I find that amazing. It's all about Jesus. The big story, not only that Jesus demonstrated in Luke chapter 24 with two guys that were strangers, but he's demonstrated through all of Scripture is that he has come to seek and to save. Not the insiders, not the people at the head of the line, not the most likely, but that he would go to an obscure place like earth and he would go to an obscure village like Bethlehem And the first thing he would do after he came back to life from death was that he would find two guys who in their discouragement thought they had missed it and were on their way home. It's amazing to me. And today, he's the same as he was then. Wherever you think you are, he is reaching out to you. So there's four things that seem to make sense for us to do in response. The first one is let Jesus into your life. Invite him in. He's the Savior. That's what he came to do, and he's revealing himself to you today. And then get with some friends and talk about Jesus. Our faith in Jesus is a personal relationship, but our faith is worked out in public, in community. Get with some others and open the Bible together and get to know Jesus and let his spirit teach you and have some food together. Jesus broke bread with these guys and we call this kind of context life groups. There's 25 or so groups. You can read about them and talk about them out in the lobby. It's a way for us to get together and spend time together. Ultimately, Jesus has come to restore our lives and to bring his transformation I'm going to invite you to take a couple of minutes to listen and watch to Dustin's story, one of the guys here at Evergreen, about how Jesus has transformed his life. 
my name's Dustin. I'm, I'm married and I have two beautiful daughters, three and four. Many people in my position would uh, introduce themselves in meetings and whatnot as my name's Dustin and I'm an addict. Due to the transformation of God, um, I don't have to say that anymore. I am a new creation in Christ. I, I started out in high school just drinking and, and um, smoking pot and, and things that I thought were just recreational that everybody did. When I realized I had a problem was when I decided that I wanted to stop using those drugs and I couldn't. Uh, my addiction it deepened and uh, got more severe. So here I was married with two young kids and a heroin addict. I was hurting everybody around me. I felt like everybody owed me something. And it seems like the more that I tried, the worse it got. Well, I found myself in an in a empty condo looking in the mirror with a lethal dose of heroin. And uh, I said the first prayer I'd said in years. And I said, God, please take my life. I'm done. I'm sick of this. I can't do it anymore. Please, God, just take my life. And I, and I took that dose of heroin waiting and expecting nothing less than death. Um, as I did not die, I fell to my knees crying out and I didn't understand why I was still here. Uh, about a week later, I ended up in a faith-based rehab center. I remember checking in there thinking that I'm going to do this just so my family can see that I tried everything, uh, so that when I did die, my parents and my wife would say, well, at least he tried everything. Two weeks into the program, I remember being in my dorm room and I, I remember praying and saying, God, I don't understand why you didn't take my life, but I thank you at this point. I thank you for that. I thank you for this other chance. And uh, as clear as could be, he said to me, son, I did take your life. I did answer that prayer. And now you have the chance to live for me. I had so much clarity in that, that, that moment. I. Um, I went from being so depressed, searching for, for happiness, to uh, giving up on that and just accepting God and finding happiness. I didn't have to try so hard anymore. I didn't have to, to work at, at this uh, satisfaction anymore. I didn't have to do that anymore. I just felt free. We don't have to carry the guilt. He's taken that away from us, and, and uh, now we're new creations in Him, and um, nine out of 10, Heroin addicts die a heroin addict, but, but God blows that out of the water. Through, uh, through Christ, all things are possible, and uh, I'm living proof of that. Yeah. Dustin and his wife, uh, Katie, will be here uh, in the next service, and just what a story. It's our story too, isn't it? I'm Dustin. So are you. We all need a Savior. Let's welcome him today as we pray.